to the Dead Inside podcast, uh, where we decide if the classics and not-so-classics of horror are as dead inside as we are. Uh, I am the gay man's answer to Fran Lebowitz, Matt. I am Kibby. And so basically, this is a nice little podcast that two best friends have decided to make because we don't see each other ever, and we both really love horror, and we have a lot of opinions. I personally am a professional hater. Kibby is slightly less of a professional hater. Um, but basically the purpose of this is to watch a movie. We will then talk a bit about the background around production, any like weird, uh, you know, happenings on set or whatever, um, and any like mythology around the movie. And then we will get into a nice little plot summary of the movie. And then after that, <laughs> because the other part about the fact that we're two best friends is that even though we both love horror, uh, different kinds of horror speak to us. So usually there will be a plead your case where one of us will try and convince the other it's actually a good movie. Um, so Kivi, why don't you tell us what movie it is that we're talking about this week? Well, today we are talking about The Exorcist, um, which if anything exemplifies the fact that I'm not as professional of a hater as you are. <laughs> it is the fact that I love this movie. Um, and I but, um, famously do not. Um, yes. Which honestly, when we first sat down and we were like, oh, okay, we're going to make this, I was like, well, there aren't really that many differences, but the more I think about it, well, no, 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 there aren't really that many where like I genuinely, where we're at like opposite ends of the spectrum. I feel like usually one of us is either like virtually positive and the other loves a movie. You know what I mean? Like one of us is really, really super stoked by it. And then the other one like is like, yeah, it's good, it's fine. And not as excited. Uh, like, uh, for example, I love Halloween. I am obsessed with Halloween. I wish I wish to embody Laurie Strode and Kim likes Halloween. It's like... I like it, I like it. <laughs> oh, okay. So usually uh, one of us will like a movie another will like super love it the only case i could think of aside from the exorcist where i had a very negative reaction is um texas chainsaw massacre uh yes. where yeah where you really loved it kibby and i fucking hated it which actually i was just thinking about that when i was um planning to plead my case about the exorcist because what I like about The Exorcist is very similar to what I like so much about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I probably need to watch that a third time um, to oh, really Jesus. kind of solidify Hell my... On Earth. Hell on Earth. Well, yeah, because it's not a pleasant movie to watch. Right? I will say, I mean, even if you like it, yeah, like the gore and stuff, like I do think objectively makes it hard to rewatch. Right. Um, however, the atmosphere, specifically the approach to the narrative and the <clears> setting <throat> in Texas Chainsaw Massacre spoke to me the same way that the setting and atmosphere and narrative of The Exorcist spoke to me. Right. So shall we get into the background? Well, first, let's, uh, why don't we uh, warm the audience up? Why don't we slip them a little finger and talk about our hot takes of the week on horror. Just real quick, just to warm up. Just have a little oh, fun yes. between us girls. It's fun. And we have some hot takes. So. We do have some hot takes. So primarily the hot take of this week, well, actually first my hot take is um, one, wear a mask, assholes. And two, wear a mask over your fucking nose. I had to sit next to someone all of last night who had 
uh, mask like on their mouth, but not their nose and kept playing with their mask. And I, through societal training and trauma, I have been forced to be polite to you, but inside I want to leap on you and rip your face off like a rabid gorilla. Wear a mask. <laughs> but the real hot take that we are going to talk about is that um, supposedly, allegedly, um, the producer of Halloween Kills, which I can't imagine if you're our, well, I mean, mostly our friends are gonna listen to this and they don't listen to horror, but like if for some reason you're not our friend listening to this, which <laughs> welcome, uh, <laughs> you probably know this already, but Halloween Kills is uh, the recent installment in the trilogy of sequels to the original Halloween. Uh, the first one came out in 2018. The next one's coming out in a couple days from recording, but probably by the time uh, we actually put this somewhere, it'll be out. Um, but the producer from that has said that they're very interested in making a remake of a Halloween 3. Now, Kibby, why don't you tell me why that's fucking laughable? <laughs> It's just the worst idea in the world. Right. For one thing. Um, I mean, for one thing, Halloween 3, again, for those of you who don't know, though I, I, the majority of people who might find this by accident probably already know this, but Halloween 3 is um, not your mother's Halloween in the sense that like, it's not even a sequel to Halloween. It's just like the like Hollywood execs or whatever got greedy and wanted to use the Hollywood, the, the Hollywood, the Halloween name and make a movie entirely separate from the original. So Halloween is about obviously Laurie Strode and her friends and all of her friends get murdered by Michael Myers. She survives. Halloween 2 is a direct sequel, which is the night after and Michael Myers is trying to kill her. Halloween 3, none of the same characters, not in the same place. It's called Season of the Witch. And it's just this batshit crazy separate movie that has nothing to do with it. And it didn't do well. So they went back to using Michael Wires. Um, I don't, I don't even think a hardcore horror fan would necessarily even like Halloween 3. Like you have to be a real hardcore, like Halloween specific fan to even care about Halloween 3. Right, which for me is the charm of Halloween 3. Um, right. I, this movie is not scary. No, um, it's fucking stupid, which is hilarious, and that's why we love it. But, like, it's not stupid in, a, in an intelligent way. Like, ho the original Halloween's not stupid in an intelligent way. I actually think it's still a good movie, but it does have stupid moments that are fun and campy, like um, a girl getting murdered with a telephone while she makes orgasm sounds and has her tits out. Like, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, but Halloween 3 is so bad, it's funny, and I don't think a sequel would especially in the current climate where well, the current climate, the current horror climate in which we have to make everything super hardcore and scary. I just don't think who asked for it. That's what I want to know. I, I do understand that Halloween three is um, definitely a cult classic in, in the purest the, sense. Yeah. In the short of definition it being of an actual cult. Right. Yeah, nobody likes this movie except for the people who like this movie, who really like this movie, and right. I know exactly why. I get it. It's it's stupid. It's stupid. Right. It's insane. Um, the but twists it's, are. It's like that in the same way for something like Jawbreaker. Like no one wants a remake of Jawbreaker. Right. There but is... every, there's so many people who are obsessed with it, but no one wants a remake of it because that would what that does nothing. I mean, it's just the fact that they're remaking Halloween three just means it just is like indicative 
of this Hollywood culture and like we're literally in the decaying point of the Hollywood culture of having to make a remake for everything because name sells. It's literally just going back to the root of what made Halloween 3 a fucking nightmare and what made it make absolutely no money. The fact that they yeah. think just the name will sell it. No, it's coming full circle. Um, I mean, Halloween 3, the original from 1982 is, is pure schlock. Um, yeah. it, it, it's nothing beyond that. It's fun. It's amazing. I love it. But it's schlock and you don't remake schlock. You, the only way to do that is to try to come up with some kind of gritty reboot where uh, is no longer schlock, but that's just not, um, at, at best, it's going to be boring. And at worst, it's going to ruin everything that could have been good about the original. Right. So, yeah. I just, I don't think we're having fun with horror in the same way. Although, from I want to watch Fear Street. Fear Street might be a future episode. Um, but, like, the Fear Street uh, movies I watched, like, because I'm, uh, I well, audio, this is famously an audio medium, so you can't see that I limp-wristed, but... I'm in fact gay, so I did watch the Drag Queen recap of the Fear Street series, um, and I do want to watch it because I do think that whoever directed that had fun with it in like a traditional campy way, but I don't think that's the norm anymore. I don't think directors really have fun with horror. I think it's kind of very focused on it must be scary in a very serious way. Yeah, and I think... Which is against what like you said Kibi, it's against the root of what Halloween 3 is. Yes exactly and I think the only example that immediately comes to mind of a writer director that is actually having fun with far is Ari Aster um, yes. who seems to have the license to do whatever the fuck he wants right after um, Hereditary which I'm actually going to be talking about a little bit later on because Hereditary, from what I can tell, pulls major influence directly from uh, The Exorcist to, to the smallest detail. Right, so, so why, um, why don't we get into the background then? You know, okay. great segue. We um, pedal in segues here, and so we will be now moving to the background. Uh, so why don't you talk a little bit, Kibi, about like, I mean, The Exorcist is such a fucking cursed movie in general, like, I mean, by design, literally. I mean, that was the marketing strategy, but also just there were so many happenings on set that there's just so much to pull from. Yeah, The Exorcist is, um, the history surrounding it is a, a mess, for right. sure. For one thing, um, it is based on a novel. It's based on a 1971 novel by a William Peter Blatty, who is mm -hmm. the screenwriter and producer of the film. Um, that he kind of, he co-produced with um, William Friedkin, who is, as, as far as I can tell, the reason behind all of the chaos that occurred on set. Right. Um, or maybe not all the chaos, but most of it. Yeah, um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of talk about how, like, intense he was, like, with specifically the actresses, which we can get into that. I mean, you will get into that a little later on, but, like, he definitely seemed to be, like, the pe I mean, like, when Linda Blair talks about him, because um, 
there is like a which you, you will probably mention but there is a documentary on shutter um about like cursed films and the exorcist is the first episode and when uh, linda blair talks about it, she's just like yeah he's a genius so sometimes shit happens essentially but like he would go and like talk to like set people like for example the main actress who plays chris like she gets pulled back by a rope and he told them to like really yank her uh because they weren't doing it hard enough and she like ended up sustaining damage to her back i think yeah and um linda blair actress for regan also received a back injury for um due to a prop defect for the scene where she's kind of flailing up and down in her bed right which um she d- does talk about in the exorcist episode of the shutter cursed films mini series mini docuseries uh which is very good i highly recommend that docuseries you your day will be ruined but it has a very rounded approach to the idea of cursed films um yes i will say the only thing is you have to like films like the exorcist because it's like literally it's like poltergeist it's it's omen right they have an episode on omen i think they have yes on the omen yeah that's the Um, i do think that's the only downside but also that i mean it's just about the time period that all this stuff happened that this was kind of a tactic yeah and as far as uh the disasters going on on set during production post-production um i guess we'll start off with the reality behind the The simple fact we have to say "Mm, i guess we'll start with (laughs) Yes, exactly. There's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot of ground to cover, and it has been covered um, pretty comprehensively, but we're going to try to bring something new to the table here as much as we can, our our insane opinions, mainly. But um, the novel that Blatty wrote for The The Exorcist is based on a 1949 apparent case of demonic possession, um, and the exorcism of a 14-year-old Roland Doe, which is a pseudonym. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal information about that case that is not very credible. Um, in some cases, later investigation by experts and academics and psychiatrists and psychologists mm-hmm. have disproved a lot of um, a lot of what little was understood about the case in the first place, but um, it still is being studied and it's especially being studied under the, um, or through the lens of the movie that directly resulted from it. Mm -hmm. So no one fully agrees on exactly what happened um, in that original case, but Vladi took his own spin on it. And then um, Friedkin is responsible for the overall tone of the movie. So if you want to talk a little bit, Matt, about um, the New Hollywood movement and Friedkin's role in that. Sure. I mean, another key piece of information about QB&I is that we have an academic background, which means we're going to hell first. Uh, Second, (laughs) (laughs) it means that, you know, the way that we focus these kinds of background and analyzing a film is very like 
uh, rooted in one, you know, the work itself and like uh, where it comes from. So the novel, but also the movement it's a part of. So the new Hollywood movement, I mean, it's it's really very self-explanatory. It can also be referred to as the American new wave. And it's really just from the mid 1960s to early 1980s. It was just basically a new generation of like Hollywood filmmakers who are young and coming to prominence. So um, obviously you have Friedkin, but you also have people like uh, De Palma, who, uh, if you don't know, did carry. Um, you have Francis Ford Coppola, you know, you have these big names who are coming to prominence and that mo I, I would say a lot of them in the 1970s that we still think of now, but you know, it is from the mid 1960s to early 1980s. Um, and so aside from that, like the 1970s to the 1980s, I mean, this is horror 101, but that's basically the golden age of horror. Um, yes. Aside from the fact that, you know, there's just a lot of classics that we still look at today, you know, this marks a period where there's an American dominance in horror films. Uh, traditionally in the past, there was a lot of European influence uh, and European prominence, which um, <laughs> another hot take, if you haven't seen uh, any European horror films, they're fucking boring. Uh, <laughs> this marks a shift to everyday settings with a certain ruthlessness that wasn't previously seen in horror movies. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a focus on defeating evil as well. Um, and there are times also that this is new in this era um, where good fails before it succeeds. You know, the good doesn't just immediately succeed the first try or it doesn't um, spend the whole movie and then finally succeed. Sometimes there are, you know, valleys and- Yes, uh, and yeah. it is a apparently a, a point of contention between Blatty and Friedkin about mm -hmm. um, whether, and this kind of relates to the director's cut versus the original theatrical release. Oh yeah, we should mention that we watched two different versions of this movie. <laughs> yes, Matt saw the original, I saw the director's cut, um, which I was not thrilled with the changes that were made and the additions I, that were made, which actually goes yeah. more into, um, even more into that point of contention that um, I was talking about because the battle between good versus evil, whether it makes more sense for evil to win or good to win, whether um, both from a narrative standpoint and a marketing standpoint, whether the movie would be more marketable with a good ending or a bad ending. Mm -hmm. This was all stuff that was being considered um, as the movie kind of gained these, or regained these scenes that were taken out or the director's cut. Um, which I think is very fascinating, considering I hated all of it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, part of the reason this movie's success also, aside from the marketing campaign, which we've mentioned, um, I, guess, I guess I should go into the marketing campaign, right, a little bit. Sure. So this movie um, also... I mean, it's general common knowledge um, if you live through it, but um, famously, Kibi and I are in our 20s, so we did not. Um, this movie relied a lot on like horror stories about people's reactions in the theaters, um, especially to like the like green vomit um, spewing from a young Linda Blair's mouth when she is uh, playing a possessed child. Um, you know, they were saying like pregnant women would like start going to labor in the theaters, I think. You know, they would say like people would pass out when they were watching it. Um, 
and essentially a lot i mean a lot of this stuff did not happen um and the marketing team essentially was just like releasing all of these rumors to increase revenue and to increase you know seats in the theater like people sitting and going to see it in the theater um which is interesting in the sense that like um i mean it's interesting because it's crazy and psychotic but aside from that it's interesting because the modern horror movie does kind of rely on that tactic of being like you'll be so scared you'll shit yourself like that <laughs> is really just the modern i mean i there's not so much of uh trailers being like oh women were vomiting in the seats and falling over and fainting but we do still kind of have that like um alarmist like oh it's so crazy i don't know if you'll be able to handle it and that's kind of um I, I would say the exorcist is if not the singular root like one of the roots of that modern uh marketing tactic definitely and uh, it's actually interesting to note that um i believe it was laddie himself who came out saying that um what really shocked the audience wasn't anything about the exorcism itself or really um Reagan's behaviors while she's possessed, but it's the scene where she's undergoing all of these um, really invasive medical oh procedures. Oh my god, yeah, I, I fucking hated that. That are really difficult to watch even today. Yeah. Um, partly, I think, because of, at least for us as people watching this movie in 2021, um, partly, I, I believe that's because the aesthetic of kind of 70s now primitive medical technology is so um seems so harsh to us and almost yeah i mean i from that documentary as well i mean that is like the primary source of where we're getting this information but like you know they discussed about how um the director freaking really went and found like a um, I think it was at a university, right? Like where they were doing some kind of procedure. I don't know. Either university or a hospital. I am simply a podcaster. Uh, <laughs> at a university or a hospital, he saw like all of the like the x-rays of a brain or like the slides of a brain that are like pictured in the movie. He saw it's some like complicated procedure and he asked the doctor to be in the film if he could use so he could like use the equipment and like use like that like freaky looking brain scan. So the doctor's in it and um this leads to some fun little gay shit. Um, <laughs> another extra in the movie who I believe was the doctor's assistant um, was gay. Paul Bateson. Gay. Um, yes, yes. What was his name? Paul Bateson. Yes, Paul Bateson uh, served as like, you know, an extra and was like the doctor's assistant. Um, and part of what played into the idea of this movie being cursed outside of the marketing is that he went on to murder his boyfriend on, I think it was like when they were on like a coke bender. Um, yeah, drugs were involved. Um, yes, and he he left the body in the apartment and he ended up calling the police and like turning himself in. Um, but, you know, that obviously caused a stir, one for the simple fact that someone on set had murdered their boyfriend. Um, but also for because he was gay and that's cursed or whatever. Who cares? Um, <laughs> not about the murder. We care about the murder. Um, aside from that, you know, there was um, 
we're, we're we're like reaching the end of this little section now but like aside from that i know there were two people who died um who were in the cast there were two older cast members so that's not really very cursed but you know it does add to the ambiance um and i guess the final point would be that uh another thing is that like apparently warner brothers accommodated the movie and then gave them an R rating instead of an X rating, which means that children could come with parents. Yes, um, which true. definitely played an important role in the controversy because what about the children is apparently a question we simply have to ask. Um, and also it meant that more people saw it. And also what? It meant that more people saw it. It meant that then it had like way more success. Um, also, uh, one last thing, this was, um, nominated for an Academy Award and won. And it's the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, which um, actually now might be a good time to mention that William Friedkin was not a, and, and is not a horror film director. He had directed The French Connection a couple of years before The Exorcist, and he definitely treats The Exorcist um, in a very kind of documentarian way right. he did have some films uh before the french connection that were just documentaries right. so he does approach this story from a very grounded um grounded straightforward perspective right and um that with, definitely with i think makes this film a lot more um divisive right and also is I mean, realistically speaking, might be the contributing factor as to why this is the horror film that got nominated for an Academy Award, like the first one. You know, exactly. it, it appeals to that sensibility. Although, I mean, we can talk about how it's forced normalization and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, The Exorcist winning an Academy Award, you know, helped legitimize the genre to a certain point. So, you know, you do have to sure. um, give it up for that. Um, do you have anything else you want to mention before we move on to our plot summary? Let's see. Um, well, there is the success of Rosemary's Baby leading up to right. uh, the creation of The Exorcist. Right. Rosemary's Baby is a big source of um, not legitimization, but like a, the success of like an occult led movie or an occult specific movie uh led to the ability for movies like the exorcist to get made with occult themes um that had no purpose but to explore i mean the exorcist you could say has a purpose of exploring good versus evil but the central theme is all occult based yes mm -hmm. um okay so you know, that seems like a good point to wrap up on and move to our plot summary. So why don't we dig our, dig our teeth into, that's not a word, why don't we sink our teeth into the mild clusterfuck that is the plot of this movie? I mean, ob objectively speaking, before we even do this, the plot is not really the main point of this movie, simply speaking. No, it's not. And which I mean, you can say, yeah, that's the thing for any horror movie. But you know, for example, like us, yeah, just like this movie definitely like its value and the reason that it, you know, continues to be referenced and watched today. I don't think has anything to do with the plot, or at least mostly nothing to do with the plot. 
Yeah, the the narrative um, is quite, I, I almost want to say sparse. The, the narrative arc is very broad. Um, right. Character arcs are very broad. Which and, is why it's confusing that we uh, open in Iraq, for whatever reason. Yeah, which apparently part of that, well, I do understand um, starting this movie off in Iraq because well because of Panzuzu that uh, Pazuzu, yeah yeah which I I understand and and I this is part of what I like about this movie to the approach um which is that if we have a film where our narrative is so kind of um and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but drawn out across two hours right. where the focus really is in the details more than anything else, um, as, as you would expect from a documentary style uh, movie. Um, mm -hmm. with, when it comes to the treatment of religion in The Exorcist, there's almost a secular approach to religion here, which I, I say pretty loosely, but um, right. so the Catholic... before we get into like the Catholic Church and stuff, why don't we like get to the <laughs> the Western civilization part? Because the the intro is quite long. Like given the fact it that it is simply a frame narrative, it is fairly long, and it does leave you a bit confused. Um, so we open in Iraq. Um, basically, we're at an archaeological dig. Uh, and there's there's of course our uh, old white guy who is the um, scholar we apparently care about um, although he ends up being a priest right which is yeah baffling he to is, me. he's our titular exorcist and right. he's also apparently an archaeologist and, and right. which and I mean I, like historically speaking yes like uh pre which I, he's part of the catholic church I mean priests are um you know scholars but I I would be shocked if it was common or normal for a priest to be on an archaeological dig agree um, um and aside also, from that I do have to mention um <laughs> which uh, I was like, what the fuck is happening when, like, the kid comes to announce that they found something? There is just this weird shot we were, where we are just seeing between the kid's legs, like, we are from behind, like, softly making love to him, which is baffling, upsetting, and confusing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And I don't understand, and I just need that to be known, and it's not, it's, it's just, like, I get it, it, like, well, it doesn't look cool, it looks pedophilic, but... I, do, I just don't understand. Like, the kid is standing arms on hips, like, legs spread, and the camera is between his legs. Bizarre, confusing, upsetting. It's very precise um, shot composition that is questionable. <laughs> right, well, compositionally speaking, fantastic, but it's it would be fantastic if we could only see it via composition, but we simply have to see it through the sociological fact, that's not a sociological fact, just the fact that we are looking between a child's legs and it looks like we're having sex with him and it's very confusing and upsetting and I don't like it anyway. Um, so this, aside from that, so we're still in Iraq, um, the, the titular exorcist who, we don't know this yet, but we find out at the end, but like he 
goes and he talks to some scholar and he announces he's leaving, if I remember correctly. And for some reason, he's mainlining like tiny allergy pills. It literally, <laughs> I know it's not, I know it's supposed to be like something that's like, I don't know, calms the nerves or whatever, but like it literally just looks like they put Zyrtec and he's popping Zyrtec. I don't know. And they probably did. Yeah. Um, But I was confused. I was very confused by this part the first time I watched this movie because I could not tell if it was supposed to be after the events. Yeah, it's very baffling if you've never seen it. I remember the first time I was like, why the fuck are we in Iraq? Right. Um, for one thing which I will say it really doesn't explain it um, which um, you know does lead to a comparison to Ari Aster in that way wherein it's horror that's baffling and not explained um, but, yeah and yeah, that's a theme that you can trace through the whole movie and that's something I, I kind of love about it because the whole uh, feeling of we don't know what's happening. We don't know what this thing is. We don't know how smart it is. We don't know what it knows, what it doesn't know. Um, Right. We are just dealing with something. Exactly. I mean, and then, so basically the end of this little section, so we're not like dwelling literally as long as this movie dwelled in Iraq on Iraq, but essentially (laughs) the big find is that there's this huge statue of a demon, which is Panzuzu. um, And for he also finds the medallion and i still don't understand the medallion but he finds the medallion before this and basically the ending the important ending to this scene is that they find a huge statue of panzuzu um which is used for protection against another demon whose name i don't remember and they say the phrase evil against evil so basically using panzuzu as a means I think I think it's like using Panzuzu as a means to block out another evil, or the medallion as a means to block out Panzuzu. I don't remember. But actually, they don't even they don't mention the name of the demon until the second movie. Mm-hmm. Also, so we we don't even have a name for this movie, even though we we know which demon we're dealing with um, the, at the point that we're talking about it. Um, but yeah, I I wanted to mention that um, one of my favorite groups of movie reviewers, Red Letter Media, um, in their review for The Exorcist, they say what I am about to say, which is that Pazuzu is, is not the right name to go with. It just doesn't sound good to, to me. It that doesn't. I mean, it's it's also baffling because there's so much Catholic imagery. Oh, also, I do have to recognize that I've been saying Pazuzu with an N for some reason, so I've made him a demon of bread in Spanish for whatever reason, but that's <laughs> fine. Um, but yes, so I think, I think Pazuzu, so I'm kind of mixing my information. We're spending a lot of time on Pazuzu, but... Um, from what I remember from the documentary, like they talked to like an actual woman who's like an archaeologist or an anthropologist or something who talks about Bazuzu and talks about how like he serves as like the evil against evil thing does mean something, but Bazuzu serves as protection from another demon. Um, and apparently the demon that appears as a face way at the end of the movie is supposed to be Bazuzu. So I guess the idea is that they released Bazuzu with this statue. But that, again, makes no, no real sense in anything. Um, but also, Pazuzu is not a winning name. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I was very confused by that 
initial scene. I don't know what that says about me. I was thinking. I mean, they, they was... simply don't explain it. So, right. And after, uh, yeah, I, I was thinking this was taking place after the fact. And part of that was because the actor who played Father Marin, um, who was, who played him? Uh, Max von Sydow. Mm. He was 30 something during filming and they made him, they gave him prosthetic makeup to make him look older. Jesus and to God, me, why? Uh, I, I have not figured that out yet, but he, be, because of that, I think um, his, his appearance at the beginning of the movie, he looked older to me than he does later in the movie during the yeah. actual exorcism so i didn't know if that was supposed to be a callback or, or a point where he's understanding um suddenly what he was dealing with maybe or something but then when um everything happens with uh burke and the stairs and the cop finds the um the amulet that Marin finds at the very beginning of the movie. Well, we're getting and, ahead of ourselves. So yeah. <laughs> before, before we get into all of that, we we hard transition to Georgetown, um, to Chris McNeil's home, who Chris McNeil is uh, a famous actress. She's shooting a movie in Georgetown. Um, she lives with her daughter, Reagan, um, who's a young, I would say she's probably like, what, 10, 12? I think she says she's 12 in the... Yeah. Yeah. yeah so she's with her 12 year old daughter she's clearly rich because she has a house in georgetown period but also this is not her main home um and she has servants that um just exist for whatever that she's not super nice to <laughs> oh, right that she's not super nice to um i don't remember anything really happening uh aside from the fact that there is um a noise. I mean, in my notes, I literally have why is their home in Washington because I forgot that she was an actress. <laughs> and they don't tell you she's an actress until like really, really far in. Um, but I think the next important, Kibby can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the next important plot point is that like she, Chris hears like a noise and it literally sounds like a fucking explosion and she thinks it's rats. <laughs> which is yeah. so insane to me. There's so many other noises they could have used. Like, I will say, I do, I genuinely believe, even though I don't really like this movie that much, I do believe that, like, their special effects is one of the reasons that they, that this movie is still relevant because it is really good for the time and it's still pretty decent for now um, because now everyone just uses CGI, so it's just a different beast. But, like, for not CGI, I think it's really, really interesting and good special effects. But the choice of noises is psychotic. Absolutely baffling. Yeah, I, in my own apartment, I have something similar where I think I have either squirrels or raccoons on the walls. And so hearing that in the movie, <laughs> I was like, this is a little intense for rats. Yeah, I don't know. that sounds like my upstairs neighbor when I lived in the city of Philadelphia who would just like jump around. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, um, it's really good. And um, actually, this I'll mention briefly the first hereditary um or the first instance that I think I've noticed hereditary took influence from the exorcist was that whole everything relating to the attic um the jump scare with the candle right bursting into flames and everything right right because she goes up to investigate yeah. the noise because she tells I 
I don't remember the servant's name. You can call me classist or whatever. I don't give a fuck. I'm sorry. I didn't, I literally, you can ask Kibby. I literally did not even remember the main cast names in our little Google doc. I had to put in bold and big text what the main characters names were. So um, that's that. But uh, Chris goes to investigate after she tells like the, I don't know if he's the cleaning guy, if he's the maintenance man. They don't really specify. He's just the whatever man that does things. So famous actress girl doesn't have to. Um, she's like there's rats you have to take care of it and he says in a vague accent which probably is vaguely xenophobic that like he he already put traps out so there shouldn't be rats and so she goes to investigate the noise in the attic and there's uh does a window blow open is that what happens well she's i know like... her so she has a candle and the candle like explodes when like into a huge flame when uh the servant guy comes up the attic door which is the, the important er, it doesn't matter the servant man is here <laughs> yeah he's there it, well the way it's shot is very strange because the they do this crazy practical effect where the uh candle bursts into flames and then goes out and then you just see that this that i think his name is carl is just there and nobody really reacts right. <laughs> it just happened right um so that was a little unclear the way that was shot right but that's that's our first indication of what's going on like basically the main uh possession demon issue in the house is this um after this um she goes to set and they're filming a movie which i'm just gonna go on a mini rant this is a baffling concept for a movie it's a student protest which is not the baffling part because it's it's I'm assuming shot at Georgetown University, which does explain why they're in Georgetown. It was shot um, on location, yes. Yes, that does explain why she would be in Georgetown filming it. I get it now, blah, blah, blah. But the concept of the movie is the student protest, but Chris is against the student protest and literally says the phrase, if you want to affect any change, you have to do it within the system. That what, was very what filmmaker in the 1970s would ever have a concept like that for a movie and then film it i just don't understand aside from apparently freaking who made the goddamn thing but <laughs> yeah so uh when like right before chris is about to film that scene she's complaining to burke the director about how the scene doesn't make sense so right uh that that may have been written in it didn't make sense to me either i mean um, i, I guess the most charitable reading of that is it's supposed to be commentary on filmmaking, but it's just not long enough and it's not interwoven into any other part of the movie. So it's just confusing and stupid. Sorry. Right. Sorry about which, that. <laughs> which I think is, is definitely part of what makes this movie so difficult to uh, just explain, to summarize in a timely manner right. because it's all about details. Everything that happens is a detail. But um, also it's about forgetting details because like you have to simply forget this detail so you can move on with the story. Like you have to yeah. treat this just as like flavor text, essentially. You have to treat it as, okay, she's an actress. She's a lead actress. Move on. You know what I mean? If we are going to, or not that we are in this particular podcast, but if we were to kind of analyze the relationship between all of those details, um, things do line up but there is so much. Right. Um, so incredibly much. At this point, 
I remember asking why is their home in Washington and then I remember she's an actress so it kind of made sense but also I didn't understand why they had a whole home and not an apartment not really an important detail but something I felt the need to write down um that seems related to her just being rich and an actress they probably just put her up somewhere right um, um also probably just the nature of the area I guess anyway the important part is that she walks home after this and she sees um Damien who is the priest who will be the important priest I mean he's not the the quote-unquote titular exorcist but he's like the man in profile we're sketching for whatever reasons um and he's basically having a conversation with another priest about like a crisis of faith and how he wants to leave the fold um after this she goes home um and she finds Reagan in the basement playing with a Ouija board right yeah um and Reagan had been doing like arts and crafts it seems and I I just thought this was kind of cool that uh, right before they talk about the Ouija board in the basement Reagan shows off this bird statue she made that looks a lot like uh the Pazuzu statue at the beginning and end of the movie thought that was an interesting detail right it is interesting um I don't think I remember that so that is cool um there are like really nice cool little finds to find in this movie um but the generally so like Chris starts up this conversation with Reagan about like Ouija boards and how they're corny and I like asks if she knows how to play and Reagan's like yeah I play all the time which uh Chris is not nearly as concerned about as she probably should be um and they basically yeah it's never uh confirmed or or really strongly hinted at that that was the reason behind the demonic possession which uh just lends to that sense of confusion right i mean well so reagan says that she talks to a friend whose name is captain howdy which is a horrible name um also (laughs) i do think this makes the uh iraq thing this is another point of confusion which i'm going to mention this more at the end like when we're doing preacher case and stuff but um the fact that a demon would call itself Captain Howdy and know to manipulate a girl in that way does make sense, but an Iraqi demon, a Mesopotamian demon, knowing that is a little bit like, I don't know, it just is like, I don't, I think there's too much going on there, but, you know. I think that speaks more to um, Reagan being portrayed as realistically as possible as a 12-year-old girl, um, albeit a rich 12-year-old girl, which does kind of seem to change her behavior a little bit. Um, right, I think it makes sense for that. elegant she appears. Right. Yeah, so I, I thought of that more as she's naming this possibly demon, possibly not, um, Captain Howdy. Would, would that insult Pazuzu, even though Pazuzu is, is not much of a better name than Captain Well, I wasn't Howdy. thinking of that. I was thinking Captain Howdy just sounds stupid and sounds more like... You know, anyway, it, it's not a real important point. They play with the board. They play with the board. Um, Reagan asks... Um, I think Reagan asks if the demon... If Captain Howdy thinks her mom's pretty and then Captain Howdy doesn't say anything. So it's like, oh, is there a demon or is it just a little girl playing around? And then they put it away. Um, we get like a bed scene where they're talking about stuff and... <laughs> It's hilarious when you've seen the movie that Reagan asks if her mother is having a relation with Burke um, because Burke is a flaming homosexual, clearly. Um, 
And I do have the question written down. Why did they put lip liner on this little girl? And I stand by that because they put lip liner on Linda Blair for some baffling reason. Um, and it's not even like, it's not even like a neutral color. It's like a coral. Um, anyway, um, but basically it's just a point of being, of, I guess, incorporating Burke into like the family situation and also, you know, bring up, oh, is Burke a fling? But he's, he's not. The mom says no. After this, we cut to Father Damien. Father Damien, Damien, I don't know, whatever. Um, hot father guy who I want to have sex with. Uh, <laughs> he is like talking about how conflicted he is and that he wants to leave the folds um, in a gym, right? He, well, we or is that see later? That's a little bit later. Because he, he's a boxer. He's a boxer. Yeah. Or and next that, boxer. That, um, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on exactly where that happens, but it's in response to... I, th I think it might I think it might be like in a priest's quarters or something. I don't remember. Yeah, it's... What's it's, important well, is what's he, said. <laughs> he does... Well, I guess we should establish what who exactly Damon Karras is, um, which he actually shows up. I didn't realize this until today, rewatching this right before recording, um, that he appears when uh, Chris is filming at Georgetown University, and he's kind of, he seems to be oh, yeah. with all of the, the hubbub. And um, he then goes to visit his mother, who lives alone in New York. Um, right, which is... She has health problems. Yes, and it's clearly, like, a rougher part of town. You know, there's, like, decaying buildings, graffiti or whatever. Um, yeah. So it does serve as a contrast her. to the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, he feels he's abandoned her because he um, went to... Or he was sent to become a psychiatrist as well as a priest. Um and so he kind of deals with the guilt of leaving her for another state entirely and then kind of considers or proposes that he put her in a home where somebody can take care of her, which ends up backfiring terribly. Right. Because she dies in there after uh, an encounter in which she asks him why he put her there. Right. I mean... Yes, so that does happen. I'll we'll get a little more into that further on. But so he goes to visit his mom. He's trying. He tries to get her to go to home, and she says, "Fuck that," um, because the nineteen seventies, and why the fuck would she want to be in a home? Um, and so we go back to uh, the the McNeil house, and uh, Chris is screaming on the phone because Reagan's dad has not called for her birthday. Um, which I do get, but like this is the first time where we see that Chris is not a collected person. Uh, Chris clearly flies off the handle at like the shortest, smallest sign of stress. Um, anyway, we get we, we get the idea that the dad's not in the picture. Um, yeah, and th that's a good point about that being our um. Well, she, she's a bit, Chris is a bit high-strung throughout the whole movie thus far, but that's kind of our confirmation that she's not the most stable person to begin with, and that kind of feeds right. into her behavior for the rest of the movie. 
Right. And then after that, we do get a scene where Reagan gets into bed with her because she says her like bed has been shaking. Um, and then I think Chris like thinks it's a nightmare or something. And basically Chris says, yeah, that's not true, but you can get in bed, whatever. Um, and then she wakes up and has to go run a scene in the middle of the night. Um, and oh, wait. Oh, fuck. This is the part where <laughs> there's a noise in the attic. Um, this is the part where she investigates the noise in the attic because she wakes up to go do the scene and she hears the noise again and she picks up the candle and she goes in um and then the candle gets blown out it like comes up like super high in her face and then there's the servant guy who says no rats for whatever thing um yeah she sees the trap and it's not touched right um and so that's that um then we cut to the priest's mom so damien's mom ends up in a mental institution or not a mental institution but she in, wait no it is a mental institution it's not it's a just a psych, is it a psych ward it's a psych ward. i don't know if it's a psych ward so well, because she me, has like um, a meltdown or something and then his brother puts her there yeah it's full of scare, scary old ladies because old ladies are terrifying right. as as we all know yeah. <laughs> we love uh, I mean, there is one woman who just goes, oh, and is like crying and reaches towards him and then covers her face. I was like, very that. It uh, seems to be a hospital <laughs> ward for um, for patients with dementia. That's what I got out of it, at least. And uh, the way I think that it's a psych ward. I think it's a psych ward because some of the women were younger. I think it's just supposed to be a psych ward. In any case, it whatever is a generic psychological ward. issue area in the 1970s, they're all getting abused. We know this. Right. And um, the fact that they all kind of, or not all of them, a lot of them uh, kind of cling to Father Karras as he's trying to see his mother, kind of point even more to how dire the, the whole um, setting is. Right. And then, like Kibby said before, um, the mom is very upset because she did not want to be in a home. And to be fair, Damien did not put her there. The brother did. Um, and he, Damien's mad because the brother didn't like consult him. Um, and she does directly blame Demi. Dim, yeah, Demian. For she, that. Yes, she says, why did you do this to me? And then turns away from him. And it's like a whole point of guilt that will haunt him. <laughs> you may be surprised to find out will haunt him for the rest of the movie. Um, <laughs> so after this, um, there's a party. There's a party at the Georgetown fancy actor's house. Uh, <laughs> I just, I'm laughing because I wrote the next point that I've written is some British guy obsessed with Nazis, messy gay who lives for drama, because I did not realize, and this happens every time I watch this movie, I do not realize that's Burke. Uh, Burke is the messy British gay who is obsessed with Nazis and lives for drama um, because... Just fights with yes, the one guy. Yeah, the, well, he fights with the servant because the servant is Swiss, and yes. Burke is a belligerent gay drunk who... Um, just limperists about and also is so drunk that he starts picking a fight with the Swiss uh, servant who has a German accent because they speak German in Swiss in parts of Switzerland. Um, and he basically calls him a dirty Nazi and provokes him and then <laughs> the servant tries to choke him out, which fair. And then they have to break it up and it's a whole thing. And then Burke just looks really smug like, yeah, you fucking Nazi. Um, so whatever. My next point is so after after like all this festivity going, that's like the comic relief or whatever, whatever. Um, 
Reagan comes down and just pisses on the floor. And I wrote, Reagan pisses on the floor, work diva. <laughs> to pull, uh, Reagan decides she needs to pull focus, uh, or the demon in Reagan decided that it needs to pull focus. Um, which, yeah, Reagan, I, yeah. I like that too, as um, aside from the bed shaking and the, the rats or, or raccoons or people or whatever in the walls. Um, I think that's a, a fitting introduction, actual kind of introduction to um, the fact that something is wrong with Reagan in the first place. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's Right. I mean, the whole party pulls the hall. At this point, they're like drunkenly playing the piano and singing, I guess, show tunes. I don't know. I'm not that kind of gay. But um, <laughs> like it does like literally screech to a halt. Uh, because she comes down, they like ask her what's up, and then she just pisses herself, and then you know Chris makes some excuse and puts her upstairs. Yeah, uh, uh, which is when we get to the famous bed shaking. Well, the first bed shaking, but the one we actually see. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, um... So the bed shakes violently, um, and Reagan's screaming, and Chris is screaming, and it's just like a whole fucking thing. Um, and... Is there anything else in, at the party? <laughs> Professional oh. podcasting. No, <laughs> what did you say? I said, is there anything else at the party? Um, apparently there's cut footage of Reagan slithering around on the floor and, and like making obscene gestures that was cut out of the movie that wasn't in the director's cut either. Um, okay. Which is why I say that the actual scene that they went with of her just peeing on the floor is a lot more effective. It's a lot more, just the, the idea of kind of that happening to a child, but a bordering on pubescent child as well. Um, right. And it's it's rather understated, especially compared to what, what happens later. wanted to include, yeah. Uh, so, also, I mean, to be, we do have to mention, I mean, it. I think in our conclusions, we'll talk about like the optics and also like the morality around having this kind of thing happen to a like, prepubescent or pubescent girl but yes. to be fair at least like they did have a stunt double to do anything that they deemed to um like profane for a young linda blair um which if you watch the documentary you'll see they include the stunt double who ended up like taking on a lot of different stuff like in the bed shaking for some of it i think she was there although on one of them linda blair like did get injured um but anyway that's a whole digression yeah. uh so that happens work um after that you know we get a dream i mean it wouldn't be a 1970s production without like a dream uh uh and uh damien dreams of like his mom who's died um that's the whole thing i think he wakes up in a sweat i don't really remember i didn't write it down um <laughs> so then uh reagan's at the doctor because um a bunch of psychotic stuff happened and the doctor says that she has a lesion on the brain um and that they have to like do some tests i think and then i wrote <laughs> the next thing i wrote down is surgery scene that makes me want to die featuring gay murderer um this is our, <laughs> the like actual the person who like actually murdered his boyfriend is in this scene like holding the thing holding the thing holding like the slab that uh reagan's on it's a really long scene there's a lot of uncomfortable noises of machines buzzing you know they show you putting they show you that they're putting in the needle you know in her neck <laughs> yes after um, this uh oh yeah go ahead go ahead um well i wanted to 
point out what I want to point out here. Let's, let's just let's just be disorganized. Why not? Um, I, mean, I guess I, <laughs> I want to talk about the debate or the really the what should be a dichotomy between um, kind of medical science slash psychiatric science um, and just straight up supernatural religious. Um, I don't know, demonic possession, which I guess uh, as far as the way psychiatry is treated, that would probably go right in the middle, which I believe the doctor that tentatively diagnosed Reagan with a brain lesion mm-hmm. uh, is the same doctor who's there for the scene where she's, uh, where Reagan is kind of spasming in and out of bed and um, Linda Blair right. is attached to the um the prop mechanism that ends up injuring her in right life. the back the back breaking machine yes um yeah and, and he's this and doctor, then there is all this other stuff um we get the little taste of science versus psychiatry because the doctor doesn't want her to go to a psychiatrist although it would probably be a psychologist we're going to move past that <laughs> distinction um uh, a note i did write is the sow is uh the sow is mine fuck me and so on and so forth yes <laughs> do you think that's appropriate here um, we're going to basically skip all the way to the exorcism because we've been spending a lot of time here, but I do want to mention that someone, when, oh, when the, when Damien is, so, as I mentioned, I want this priest to fuck me, um, when he, he's talking to another priest, the priest is like, you look like Salmineo, and I said, I now pronounce you fag, uh, <laughs> um, and I am keeping that in, um, that's power. Aside from that, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening. I mean, basically at this point, like, shit is just hitting the fan in the house. You know, Reagan is stabbing herself, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, aside from that, uh, the Damien ends up going to see Reagan eventually, right? Yeah, and yeah. before we get to that, because um, Damien's character arc is so related to um his own loss of faith and his own feelings i think at the very beginning of the movie um when chris overhears him talking to another priest he says verbatim i feel like a fraud um he also kind of gives insight into the catholic church's own um, relationship with exorcism which is basically that it's not a thing it needs to be approved right. um, by the Vatican, or at least by a, a higher up. Um, right, which is why Damien ends up paying multiple visits, because he has to find proof. Like, uh, so for for example, the example we'll use is that, like, he comes and tries to record Reagan talking. I believe it's in, he thinks it's in, like, Latin or something, but she, one of the, um, points that will get the church to approve it is that if uh, the subject is talking a language they've never had access to. Right, and part of that, um, aside from speaking Latin, am I correct that Reagan ends up being English speaking, it ends up being English backwards. It doesn't end it up ends up being Latin. English backwards, yes. And so... Oh, also Burke dies. <laughs> oh yeah, Burke dies, that happens. Um, which he gets... He ends up falling from a second story window and breaking his neck, which 
you may be thinking, wow, that's not real. And they literally mentioned that like that wouldn't happen. So like clearly some other outside force had to like kill him. Yeah, and the implication is that, uh, or rather it's not the implication that the movie makes, but the implication made by um, the detective investigating his death is that he may have been in uh, Reagan's bedroom prior to his death. Right, well, he was taking care of her. Well, yeah, he, yeah, he's babysitting her, um, but at this point that it's not really believed that she actually is possessed. Um, I think the detective mentions to Chris as he's investigating, like, could there have been someone else there? Um, does Reagan remember Burke being in her bedroom? Right. Which to me read as, could he have been molesting her? And Right. Well, because at this point, it is also important to uh, note that, like, uh, like Chris and others and, like, the people around her don't think that Reagan is truly possessed. So they think, like, Reagan, the little girl, killed Berg. So they're trying to find a reason for that. Um, yeah. Or somebody was defending her from Berg. Right. Um, but Berg is, is a, not a good guy. He's, he right. can be um yes he's too gay so he simply must be dead and honestly he was fucking annoying so as a gay man i say bring on the carnage um okay so aside from that basically a lot of random shit happens for a long time and they uh damien wants this exorcism to happen but they the church won't let him do it by himself so they bring in an expert who's the guy from the beginning who was in iraq for some baffling reason um, and he's going to do the exorcism and Damien is going to assist. And this is where we come into like, part, part of the crazy part of this movie is that like, this is the main memorable part of the movie and it's the end. Um, it's so short. Like literally the, um, photo that they use on the cover of like the movies and on like the posters is the old priest who's coming and getting out of the taxi and standing in front of the house. Right. And that happens like when there's like, I don't know, maybe like 30, 40 minutes left. Uh, Even less, I, yeah. 25, 30 minutes. And before that, um, just to be, because that, that scene is so short and because everything leading up to it, um, it and leading up to the ending to kind of focuses more on Damien than anybody else. Um, I wanted to point out that juxtaposition between Damien's attitude toward this exorcism and the doctor's and psychiatrist's attitude toward um, the ostensible mental illness right. slash brain problems that Reagan is having because there is a very clear distinction between um, these medical doctors not knowing at all what they're dealing with but being extremely certain that they are right. 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 And, and that yes. they, there is a medical answer versus the Catholic Church just, I don't know. Right. I, don't, I don't know anything. Don't look at me. Don't ask right. me. Um, I mean, it definitely presents the idea of like turning to an exorcism as a last resort and as um, when everything else fails you, when all of the people who are supposed to have power fail you, like what do you do? Um, but yes. so we, we get like a mildly long-ish scene where uh garris who's the old guy is explaining what's going to happen oh, like, was it karis is damien Marin is the the old guy 
Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, I get confused. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they start the exorcism. Uh, the bed raises in the air, all that kind of shit. Um, they, <laughs> um, the demon tells the priest to shove it up your ass, you faggot, which hmm, representation, I guess. Um, I do also specifically remember saying, fuck him, fuck him. And then writing down literally me wanting this to be a porn, uh, not between the child, but between the two consenting adult men, <laughs> just to specify. Um so and it, it, there's just a lot of stuff happening it's just a big scene where they're using like the the big vomiting scene happens there's all this other stuff it's just special effects this kind of culminates in um the older priest dying like he ends up uh i i think damien gets thrown out of the room or something because he's um, having a meltdown and then the older priest whatever happens he ends up dying and then damien has to take over Harris, so Damien is is the one who throws himself out the window because he's tempted to kill, like straight up kill Rayan. And right. Marin, crazy. crazy. Yes. Wait, so oh wait, wait, no, no, no. The, uh, this is this is no. That's after. So the priest dies. So the old the old guy dies. Yes, Marin dies. Marin dies. Damien starts pounding the fuck out of his chest for some reason. <laughs> um, and then I wrote down because he goes and he like just starts like slapping Reagan. I wrote, he has decided to beat the fuck out of this girl. Fuck those kids. Uh, <laughs> but he, and he asked the demon to uh, like enter his body, which is the important part. And so mm -hmm. the demon enters him and we, we keep getting flashes of like someone in a mask and it's supposed to be Pazuzu. Um, and Pazuzu transfers I guess, to him, and to pre prevent himself from killing Reagan, he jumps out the window, um, and then he falls a very comically long time down the steps. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, the stairs uh, yeah. are very daunting, um, and from what I'm hearing in, in real life, they're exactly that steep and strange and, and scary, but on film, I don't know how well that translates at the end it's it just sure a does shot it. of somebody falling and falling yeah it's just it's comically long and then so the priest he says who's i guess his friend who he has a friend who he told that he like wants to leave the fold and who like snuck like alcohol to them um bewilderingly he appears uh at the end when damien has taken this fall and he comes to the mangled corpse of his friend <laughs> and asks if he wants to make his confession um, yeah father dyer just appears yeah so that he happens end, he ends up being um important in exorcist three because we don't talk about exorcist two um oh we don't ever <laughs> But yeah, he, he just kind of appears. Yeah, so, and that's the end of Damien, essentially. Um, and then the next day, everyone's packing everything up and they're fucking off. Um, the babysitter hands... Oh, by the way, there's a babysitter. Um, the babysitter hands <laughs> the amulet that they found at the beginning to Chris. Um, Father Dyer knows them somehow and comes up to their car and... Uh, and Reagan doesn't remember anything. That's the important part. Uh, at this point, I'm writing, oh my God, can this fucking end? 
because this ending took a very long time even though I'm sure it was only like five or ten minutes it just felt like everything we needed to say ended when the mangled corpse of Damien fell down the steps um uh and then Chris gives uh Dyer the medallion at the end and then he's he walks to the steps with, to which I wrote now he's just walking end it for fuck's sake um and he <laughs> stares at the steps as music plays and that's the end uh, the steps that Damien fell down yeah I I don't know that I love that whole the um, ending they the don't end, nail the ending uh, which in the director's cut um right there is if I'm remembering right um, there is no interaction between Reagan and Dyer, which is arguably more confusing um, or less. Right. Uh, I'm honestly not too sure. I think it's probably I, a net neutral amount of um, confusion. But why don't why don't we uh, take this time to transition to plead your case? I should say, I before we get into this whole thing about me hating this movie, I. When I first sat down to watch it, I would say probably for the first hour, hour and a half, I was like, why did I feel so strongly about this movie? I don't remember hating it. And then we got to the end that would never end. And I was like, oh, right. This is why I fucking hate this. Uh, so on that note, Kim, why is this a good movie? Well, I think, and I'm, I, I think that I'm reasonably critical of this movie because of one, how long it is, uh, which inherently is going to make it feel drawn out. Um, yeah, it was longer than I remembered, and it's longer than, um, like, the average movie at this time. Like, for seven, sure. 70s were kind of transitioning, 70s, 80s were transitioning a little bit into the long movie era, but, like, normally they knew how to end shit in an hour and a half, so. Yeah, and uh, like I said, the ending... Uh, it's clear to me, uh, based on the ending, that the writer and director did not totally agree on how they wanted to end this story, uh, whether yeah. they wanted evil to win, good to win, both, neither. It seems like they kind of went with both and neither. Uh, but I think what is really... Um, what makes this movie so worthy of respect in my opinion uh to this day is how well all of these details work together the, the minutest details and how um which is to say how cohesive they make what should be a drawn out and boring movie once you start to kind of piece together these um, different themes on good and evil and mm. is it worth it to try or not? Um, I will say, I think, to be fair to the movie, it does not feel drawn out except for the beginning and the end. It's just unfortunate for the movie and the way they organize it because when things are drawn out at the beginning and the end, it's literally the worst time to have to be drawn out. Yes. It makes it, that's the most memorable part of the movie then, for me. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, I would agree that on, on both ends, yeah. uh, the movie is drawn Which out. I think also probably speaks to what you were saying with Laura Kibbe about how, like, probably the director and some other, and the writer didn't agree on how it was supposed to end, which I haven't read the novel, so maybe there is a different ending to the novel. I won't be reading it. 
Um, but but <laughs> I, I, I haven't yet. But yeah, but I mean, we are considering potentially doing books on this podcast, so I would potentially read it for the podcast. But we need a yeah, month. we need a month before I'm consuming more exercise content. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there's clearly, I think the beginning and the end were clearly added at a later point than the rest of the movie. It would, it would, especially the sense. beginning. I think the beginning especially was added. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 At a different and Pretty much, I, um, I guess also to, to add on to what I was saying before about how this movie could have been very drawn out, like how the beginning and ending were drawn out. Um, the, the key word as far as the horror is concerned, other than maybe shock for the reasons that we said that are actually shocking is just confusion and, and uncertainty and insecurity and having um, relatively rudimentary, but at the time, the latest um, medical theory, the, the latest psychiatric theory, all of these organized, um, well-studied kind of institutions dealing with this thing, just this thing, this undescribable, um, uncategorizable problem. Right. And the Catholic Church, an organization apparently so organized that uh, your standard priest would need approval and um, and need to do an entire case study to justify performing an exorcism in the first place. And speaking on that, um, kind of all of the interactions between Damien and possessed Reagan as he's trying to build a case for an exorcism, I think more than anything else in this movie speak to that confusion and um, one of, let's see, one of the interactions I took note of is Reagan's or the demon's Pazuzu, I guess, uh, yeah. claim that I'm the devil. And then Damien responds, if that's true, uh, then you should know my mother's maiden name. Uh, in response to uh, right. the demon or demons saying that uh, Damien's mother is with them. And the demon cannot give uh, Damien's mother's maiden name. So maybe it's not as smart as we think. And then there's the Which whole, on uh, the part of the director and the writer is smart because it, it makes a more complicated demon. And that's, I will say, I do think that speaks to, you know, kind of the background we were giving about how, you know, um, we're kind of ushering in a new era where good can fail and yeah. also like evil it takes on a bit of a different um like a different face it's not just you know black and white evil good evil good um although i mean the demon is objectively evil in this but like not black and white in the sense that like there is more of a grayscale about what that evil can encompass is where i'm going with this more you know to say yeah. something is simply the devil makes a very concrete claim about how it's just evil um and it knows everything um and you simply just have to not listen to it but this uh evil presented in this movie is a bit more complex which i think is a yeah. bit more intriguing 
we don't know what it knows. And for that matter, when um, when Damien sprinkles what is ostensibly holy water onto right. Rayan, and the demon responds to that, and then he goes on to explain to Chris that it's just tap water. Right. That uh, interaction about uh, Damien's mother's maiden name leads directly into that. Um, I believe it happens in the same exact scene. And when you think about what the implications are with the, the demon or with Reagan reacting to the holy water, that brings up a ton of questions with no answers. Like, does the demon not know that they're that the water was not holy water, is the demon pretending to not know that it's holy water so as to break up any evidence that Damien has hmm. to justify the exorcism? Is the I mean, it speaks to something, one? it definitely speaks to something that they said, or it lends itself to a reading that the demon knows, or the demon, whether it knows or not that it's holy water, isn't affected by holy water, and because I remember I remember who said it earlier in the movie, they said that like the demon wants the exorcism because it will make Reagan weaker. So that kind of detail does speak to that theory. You know, the demon wants this exorcism, so it's going to act according to um, the cues it knows that people will expect from it so as to trigger the exorcism, which again, leads to a smarter kind of evil, a more interesting kind of evil. Yeah, which it almost, and again, it's not clear whether it does or not, but for me, at least the way I read it, um, it, it almost levels the playing field. It's it, evil is allowed to fail just as easily as good is allowed to fail. Um, and evil is able to make a comeback exactly the way that good is able to make a comeback. Mm -hmm. um, so I just thought that whole kind of, um, oh, and, and this also goes back to Iraq being um, the setting of the first like, 10, 15 minutes yeah. of this two-hour movie, um, which definitely should have been shortened, but uh, what used to be Mesopotamia, where a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of um, demons that we know something about in modern times came from. Demons are not so much a Catholic thing or even a Christian thing. Right. Um, in most, I, I think, denominational religions, demons don't really quite exist the way that they do in stories like this where um, we were dealing with demonic possession. So as strange as it is to start in um, a setting that we in 2021 associate with a particular um, major historical event right. that was not relevant at this time is, is a little strange, but it to me makes this uh, narrative a lot more cohesive than if it were, let's say, based in the Vatican City or something along right. those lines. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is what initially to me the first time I saw this uh, felt out of place and strange now kind of adds to that cohesion for me personally. Right. Although definitely should not have been that long. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah yeah um so i mean i guess this is a good time to come to a close and ask is this film dead inside which is to say will this film endure like do we think which is a ridiculous question frankly to ask about the exorcist of all things but you know as a practice for what we will be doing for the rest of our podcast will this film five years 10 years even 20 years down the line will it endure I think it's going to thrive now more than ever. I, I think. Um, right. I do time, think depictions of sickness in general in horror are kind of having a renaissance. Although, I mean, you can't really call it a renaissance for The Exorcist as it's one of the best known horror films of all time. But Right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that. I, well, this this movie has been studied and studied and studied for d- decades. It continues to be uh, a major, I think, point of focus in film studies because of its um, subject matter, for one thing, it, and its relevance to its time period. Freaking is a very well-known director, again, not just for this movie, but um, I it's going to remain relevant in the circles of academia, which is not toward my point. Um, I think that- In fact, it's a detriment to your point. <laughs> in fact, it's a detriment to my point, yeah, because if anything, that, that's gonna be, uh, you know, that's not the zeitgeist. Right. Academics don't really decide the zeitgeist. But I think with um, directors like Ari Aster, which again, for, from everything that, everything that I've seen in The Exorcist that I could connect to Hereditary in some way, um, the attic scene, even uh, kind of the use of practical effects instead of like CGI right. um, for Ari Aster mainly or, or broadly, um, no real jump scares, no musical stings, no um, nothing really nothing insane in the way that, um, let's say, Midsummer is insane. Right, but nothing like, movie. it's not like a Marvel movie CGI fest of... Right. Yeah, but I get what you mean. It means that. It means it's not like um, a horror movie that's like, uh, I mean, really a, a modern horror movie that's completely based in CGI and making disgusting CGI gore that kind of thing um, right very little gore even and in the exorcist too very little gore um but with and and i found this to be um a, a theme both in the exorcist and in hereditary this again dichotomy is it demons is it mental illness and the answer is it's probably both right. in hereditary is definitely both in um in the exorcist it's more of a question, but at the same time, you're dealing with the grief that Chris is feeling with the confusion and um, kind of loss of faith that Damien is feeling. There's this amalgamation of these, uh, what we would expect to be competing uh, philosophies Mm -hmm. or um, competing theories. This kind of stuff being brought back up into more recent films by directors like Ari Aster, um, I think will probably bring a new wave of exorcist fans. Right. 
who might be looking for the same kind of subject matter treated in a similar, similarly um, nuanced way. Mm-hmm. And especially seeing how direct some of these influences are. Um, I don't want to say Ari Aster just ripped content straight from The Exorcist, but stuff like the attic scene um, really struck me as like, okay, this must have been an actual reference to The Exorcist. Um, So I think that along meaning directors like Ari Aster, as well as just um, a more recent focus on like atmospheric horror or horror with a lot of subtext, um, maybe treated in a more straightforward way from, and hopefully we can talk about this at some point about Malignant, um, movies like Malignant, like James Wan. I do have to say when I said directors aren't having fun with horror, I think whoever directed and had a part in making malignant was having fun i will say that <laughs> yeah a lot of yeah a, a lot of um james wan's films are have this very uh i guess what you would call a movie theater horror feel to them they're campy uh, camp campy gory really sh- uh, gory in like a stupid way chaotic almost Gory in a stupid way, almost like maybe not stupid, yeah. but silly. Gory in a silly way. Yeah, like I don't even know what I would call it. Like, like a Fear Street, someone getting their head shoved through like a bread cutter. That's not silly gore, but like malignant or like I forget, like someone it in The Exorcist, her head going three sixty and then vomiting green goo. That's silly. Yeah, that's, oh, actually, I wanted to mention that, too, just just as a quick aside, that uh, when she turns her head completely around and is peeking everywhere, that's not scary. It's not scary or shocking. But But it is fun. (laughs) It is fun. And um, what was pointed out in the Red Letter Media review I mentioned earlier is um, the scene where Reagan slaps Chris and Chris goes flying. Um, and she's turned and her head is turned a little bit too far where it's like not quite all the way around, but it's right. enough that it could conceivably be real, but is not right. It's extremely right. unfair. Well, she actually got, the actress who plays Chris actually got injured in that scene. So that, that probably oh, is part of it. And that's the one they kept because um, just briefly, like the freaking wasn't happy with how they were pulling her because uh, basically a guy on set, like they had a rope on her and they would pull her. And that's how mm-hmm. she got like thrown across the room. And he told them to really put like, their back in it because it wasn't like hard enough. And so he, the guy pulled way too hard and she ended up getting thrown into the wall and like, you know, sustaining a bunch of injuries to her back. And that's the she- scene that they used. So. Yeah. So you got your, you got your, uh, your, your exploitation, your, right. uh, your injuries your uncanny creepy still shot of this 12 year old girl with her head turned a little too far back (laughs) i mean you have her quote unquote masturbating with a cross which i don't know how that could ever be conceived as masturbation because she's literally shoving it into herself stabbing herself but you know that that's campy that was pretty shocking yeah it is shocking i mean that part is shocking because it's i mean it's just uncomfortable but Yes, that, that kind of stuff is campy. Which I think is what the, this whole movie is 
kind of banking on is being uncomfortable and it really works that way I think and in a way where like a movie like Hereditary is as much as I think it is um, influenced by The Exorcist and as effectively uh, that's done in my opinion it do we do we do spoilers here for other movies I guess we shouldn't do that I think we, well what movie is it <laughs> For Hereditary. I, okay, how about this? If you really don't want a spoiler for Hereditary, if you've really weighed this, if you've gone through, if you're a horror fan, even if you're not a horror fan, if you like good acting and you have really gone through this entire two-year quarantine, most of which we literally were forced to spend inside and have not watched Hereditary, <laughs> click off, I guess. But we're going to spoil Hereditary. <laughs> okay, spoiler alert for Hereditary. Um, aside from the subtext and, and all that interesting little detail kind of stuff, you also get a, a kid getting her head just whacked off oh, by yeah. a fucking telephone pole. Uh, yes. You, you got Tony Collette sawing her own head off with piano wiring. Right. <laughs> it's like insane stuff. Right. Uh, which I think if if there's anyone looking for an actual kind of solid middle ground between The Exorcist and like something like Malignant or Saw, Hereditary might be it for right. you. So so I'm sorry if you didn't see it. Um, see it now. But go fucking watch it. What are you doing? Watch it, please. Don't watch gonna... Midsummer. Watch Hereditary. Uh, 100%. 100%. 100%. Agree. Um, That's a conversation we'll have at some point. Uh, yes. I mean, we will obviously cover that because, um, as I've said to Kippy multiple times, there is not a chance in hell that Ari Hester isn't some kind of queer. I said what I said. I'm right. Um, <laughs> and therefore, he's a queer icon and we will be discussing him. Um, this seems like a great time for me to say whether I think this will endure. Um, yes. I mean... Nobody needs me to confirm that the Exorcist will endure. I'll start with that. Um, sure. Personally, I'm going to say something controversial yet brave. Um, I don't think the Exorcist is a good horror movie. I think it's a good movie. And I will explain I why. Yes. I think the reason that the Exorcist endures as a horror movie is because it's, it's, a, it's a horror movie. It's created as a horror movie. It's marketed as a horror movie. A lot of the big rigmarole around it had to do with its marketing as a horror movie. I get that. That's fine. I think what makes it endure is nothing of the horror, because as we mentioned, the horror is not really scary. There's not really that much of it. Um, and I don't think there needs to be necessarily. That's not like a critique. Um, and what there is like was great for the time, but you know, it's campy. But I think what makes it a good movie is probably part of Freakin's, um, you know, experience and preference for documentary style, because I genuinely think the filmography in this movie is fantastic. I think it's compelling, aside from that shot where we're in between a child's legs, which is confusing and odd. <laughs> but um, I think the filmography holds up, um, which I do think in the 1970s, you get a lot of really cool, fun stuff with filmography that we still use today. Um, I think the special effects, while, I, I mean, yeah, they're dated because they're not from now, I still think they are fun to watch. I think some of it holds up, you know, um, Chris getting launched into the wall. You don't know it's a guy who has the rope. It looks very much like she's getting pushed by a force. The shaking bed, like it's it's kind of crazy. 
um because like Linda Blair is just like flailing all around and it's just it's a lot but um I think also I think the themes that make it endure are not the theme that everyone says it is like everyone says or not everyone but like the popular thing to say is that like oh freaking wanted to explore whether evil really exists could it exist in this little girl and I just think that's a ridiculous notion to like explore whether evil exists via fiction that makes no sense that doesn't make sense to me I mean it makes sense to me in the sense like you can talk about whether or not evil exists in fiction because fiction can discuss those kinds of things but to literally explore the question can evil exist I, in fiction that's not like the medium that makes the most sense to answer that question logically like something non-fiction related would be the better one i think this exists to talk about the nuances of evil to talk about the debate whether or not intentional like the you know controversy between science and psychiatry the controversy between science slash psychiatry and the catholic church uh what happens when literally no one can give you an answer for things uh medically um which still happens today I mean, we literally just had COVID, which we know a lot more now, but, you know, at the beginning, we knew nothing. We, it, It's crazy, and it still applies. Um, I think the good versus evil thing, like, it does, of course, appear in this, but I think the interesting part about it is what we discussed about the demon, what the demon knows and doesn't know, what it's trying to accomplish, you know, humanizing it in that way, like, giving it a a framework of thinking that we can see in the movie. I think that's what will make the movie endure, not necessarily that it's scary. Yeah, I completely agree. Just giving that middle ground, giving that, like leveling out the playing field in that way where we, we have a sentient anomalous being. Right. It's not a question of does evil exist? It, it's a question of what do we do? <laughs> right. I, I would just like to reiterate, yes, I know that you can explore the struggle of good versus evil in literature or in film because literally that's what we've done since we could write and direct and make films. But I wanted to say like, you can't prove whether or not good and evil exists in fiction because a fiction, a fictional work is something, you can just make it be whatever you want. That's not proving anything. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's something to explore. It's something I I don't I think it would be unwise to It's meant to ask questions. I'll put it that way. Right, exactly. I think the movie asks questions. I don't think this idea that it explores whether or not evil I don't think that's true. But Yeah, I I agree. It's it's the human element right that makes this a, a great The human movie. element in evil as well. Yes, and that like you said, to me, that makes this a great movie, a great horror movie. Uh, mm. I, I, I think I agree that this isn't, its merit isn't so much in its horror elements, even though it has some really great horror elements. They're just as understated as everything else. Right. And so, it, which works, but um, it's definitely not the, it, it shouldn't be the main draw. Right. Um, I think uh, that pretty much wraps us. Thank you so much for listening to our two friends who we forced to watch this. And <laughs> if you aren't one of those two friends, thank you so much for finding us. Um, <laughs> if you want to communicate with us uh, about recommendations for horror, about questions you have, we do have an email account. It is the, the so T-H-E, Dead Inside Podcast 
at gmail.com. Again, that's the dead inside podcast at gmail.com. I, you can find me, Matt, on Twitter at M-B-E-R-G horror at Emberg horror, where I literally just scream about horror shit. Um, I have like no followers. <laughs> um, and Kivy, where can we find you? Um, I am on Twitter as well. Uh, my handle is guts underscore tank. That is G-U-T-S underscore T-A-N-K. I hope I spelled that right. I, really you know what? If you didn't catch the spelling, it'll be in the description. It'll, it'll be there. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I, I do some comic art and some horror art. Um, it's janky, but so is my Twitter. So um, anywhere. It's the same as your Twitter, right? It is the same as my Twitter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have an Instagram, but it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay. Well, again, thank you for listening. And until next time. Bye.